I'm Sam and I'm here with Kat. Hello. And welcome to Our Threatened Species. This is a podcast where we talk about the vulnerable wildlife in Britain with help from our expert guests. Wildlife is decreasing across the world and whilst we all want to protect the big charismatic species like lions and giraffes, it's easy to forget the animals and plants we have right on our doorstep. So this podcast aims to shine a light on the fantastic species that live right here in the UK. Because as a wise man once told me that to save the world, you must first understand what's on it. So follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Threatened Species to get in touch and to ask your questions. Hello and welcome to episode three. For today's episode, we spoke to Lucy Hodson, or Lucy Lapwing as she's otherwise known. She's a naturalist and conservationist and knows a lot about all kinds of wildlife. Yes, but we spoke to her about beetles, or more specifically, the stag beetle. We even dipped into societal collapse. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. So we asked you what species you'd want to talk about and you chose the stag beetle. So I was wondering why you chose that species. So, um, well, first of all, I've never seen one. <laughs> so that's my personal interest in the matter. Um, it's on my kind of wish list of species that I want to see in the UK. Um, and what I'd say is that when we tend to talk about endangered species, um, and you know, wildlife that's in trouble and needs our help, it always tends to be the kind of big sexy animals that we think about. Um, often a mammal, um, and then often something that's really kind of charismatic. Um, so if you're thinking about it on a global basis, people will think of things like whales and elephants and rhinos and that kind of thing, which are all incredible animals. They're absolutely amazing. But um, I find that like the little guys don't get as much attention and they're often, um, you know, if, if there's problems going on with the smaller organisms in our ecosystems and environment, and that's going to tell us something about the bigger picture and the problems we're facing. And I think stag beetles are a really good example of this. So um, I don't know. I should probably have read up on them a little bit, <laughs> but I think they're the largest beetle in Europe or one of, if not. Um, I think they're definitely the largest beetle in the UK. Um, really, really hefty, quite ferocious looking. So named the stag beetle because the male has these kind of antler looking pincers on the front of his head. And yeah, they've they've become very endangered in the UK because of the lack of available habitat for their young, for their larvae. So yeah, that's why I chose them. Oh, I've never seen a stag beetle either and I'd love to uh, and I live further south than you as well so I feel like I should have seen one by now but I don't think I've been looking quite as hard. Uh, so why are they needed in the landscape? Why do we need beetles and what other species rely on them? So there's a whole gang of invertebrates known as um, sap saprozilic, is how you say it, saprozilic invertebrates which are uh, insects and other creepy crawlies that rely directly on dead wood and dead plant material and large numbers of them are very kind of specific and have a very specific niche um, and large numbers of them in the UK are endangered or threatened or very rare because there's so little of this deadwood habitat and you'll find that you know there's a spectrum so if if a, if if a tree falls in the woods, as the saying goes, um, how long does it take for a beetle larvae to find it? And there'll be different types of creepy crawlies that need that log at different stages of decomposition. So some will be the first ones on the block. As soon as that tree falls, they'll start, you know, investigating it and start their life cycle on freshly fallen dead wood. And then as that advances, they'll help break it down a little bit. And then there'll be another species that needs it that little bit more further along broken down. They'll break it down a little bit more. And then there'll be another species, so on, so on, until you've got a pile of mush and it's, it's disintegrated to nothing. And that's the whole nutrient recycling cycle. So yeah, I'd say 
there's, it's probably complicated, but there'd be other species within that cycle of breaking down deadwood that would rely on species like the stag beetle to do that. Um, and maybe even other species that aren't invertebrates, so things like fungi as well. And why are stag beetles so important? Ooh, why is anything so important? <laughs> it's very philosophical. <laughs> um, the stag beetles, so if you've got stag beetles present in the UK, it's basically an indicator that you've got kind of quite a healthy cycle within your ecosystem because they rely directly on deadwood. So they need rotting, decomposing wood in the environment to be able to complete their life cycle. Um, and that's because the larvae feeds on that. So the female will lay an egg underground on some dead wood and the larvae will live on that for years, starting from like two years up to, I think it's like seven. So if you've not got any dead wood, then you've not got any stag beetles and they've disappeared from most of their range in the UK. Um, so you only really get them down south, which is why I've never seen them. I'm based in the Midlands. And you only get them in places that have got good amounts of, of this deadwood habitat. And it's just basically a symptom of humans, what's the word, tendency to over-tidy, tidy up the environment, and tidy things away. And so, yeah, we've got very little deadwood left in the environment for, for stag beetles. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. Um, I know that whenever I've seen a tree that's fallen down, it's never really been left there for very long. No, people like yeah. to mop it up pretty quickly. Yeah. Still yeah. up for firewood. Exactly. <laughs> so... Are they being protected at the moment? And do you think it's enough? Um, there's quite a lot of awareness campaigns going on. So there's a good charity called the People's Trust for Endangered Species in the UK that are doing like a, a stag beetle project, as it were, to get people to kind of report sightings and record where they see them. And that's kind of focused around raising that awareness as well. So getting people who manage places like um, parks and, you know, like golf courses and nature reserves and that kind of thing to incorporate leaving deadwood as part of their management regime. And cycle. Great. So do you think that's all they really need to recover their population in the UK? No, I think there probably could, could be more. There's still a lot of threats. Um, so they the males tend to fly at night to, to go in search of a female um, and they can get a little bit disoriented in, in a human environment and land on roads and things like that and get squashed and killed. Um, there's also a lot of kind of bug insect phobia in modern society, people really hate any kind of creepy crawly and you can't get anything that looks more ferocious really in the UK. <laughs> They're not ferocious, but they look it, you know, they can be subject to people just freaking out and killing them. So yeah, there's a lot more that we could do like awareness wise and just making, you know, larger areas of habitat that aren't interfered with and, and overmanaged, I think will just do good for lots of different types of wildlife, not just like beetles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds to me like a lot more could be done for loads of different species in terms of conservation. Conservation in the UK is always focused on this species first approach. People see a species decline and they think, right, how do we help that species? Um, and they do very direct things to help it. And, you know, that it's brilliant efforts and it works, but it's often quite a an artificial relationship and way of helping things. So if turtle doves, for example, are declining, people will start scattering grain for them to feed on so that they've got enough food to feed the chicks. And it's like, okay, so what's the difference between this and a zoo? Because you're just going out feeding turtle doves every day. You're not fixing the problem where it starts. Um, so although you could do all sorts of interesting things focused on the stag beetle, it's about kind of fixing that bigger picture and allowing an ecosystem to operate in all the ways that it needs to. So allowing that nutrient cycle to fulfill itself, having all of the parts in that ecosystem that should be there, which is a strong word, but you know, all of the components that should allow it to operate. So whether it's large grazing animals and that kind of thing. And we hear about rewilding now, which is obviously the big buzz term at the moment. And people immediately start panicking and thinking of wolves. <laughs> um, 
but it's just about having an ecosystem that's got all of those bits in it that all mush around and move together and allow everything to exist naturally without us having to interfere too much, which is a bit of a pipe dream in the UK because, you know, we're one of the most heavily modified pieces of land in the world. But I'm hopeful that in the future we can see more areas of land that, you know, allow for things like stag beetles to just get on with their thing and just do it. Yeah, I guess the you know, intensification of agriculture and using pesticides and growing monoculture crops, it's all contributed really to the decline of loads of species, not just the stag beetle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and agriculture isn't a be all and end all bad. You know, we've done it for thousands of years and lived semi-harmoniously with nature. We might've made a lot of large animals extinct, but the way that we do traditional agriculture is really beneficial to some species. You know, they really get on with it. Things like Skylarks and curlew and lapwing and yellowhammer and that kind of thing, we tend to describe as farmland birds because when we do it well, they like it. But we've started trying to beat nature at its own game in the last half a century. So, and chemical use and everything like that's just got out of hand. People are really detached from the land. And I think that's the problem. So, how did we use to farm in a way that was actually beneficial to the species in the UK? Like the stag beetle. Yeah. And the bird species that you were talking about. It's just the ways that we were kind of prior to our technological advances. So really kind of industrialization of agriculture. We had to operate within the confines of nature. You know, we had to follow the the seasons. We had to, you know, work with the weather. We had to accept, you know, a certain amount of crop damage. Food wasn't as aesthetic as it is now. So, you know, we accepted worms in our apples and bruises on our spuds and all that kind of thing that now people just freak out at. And just the slower way in which we did things, we allowed fields to go fallow. We, the way that we managed traditional hay meadows and that kind of thing, it just, it gave more space for things like, like birds to breed um, and wildflowers for pollinators and insects and that kind of thing. So it was just a much slower relationship that required a lot more of an understanding than a lot of farming does now, which just kind of forces the land to do what we want. You know, before artificial fertilizer, you couldn't just keep planting very similar crops on the same area of land year after year after year and forcing it to do it. You had to slow it down and do it more rotational, but we've managed to kind of skip that step and we need to take a step back because it's coming back to to bite us on the backside. (laughs) And do you think things are going to get continuously worse, not to be too pessimistic, or do (laughs) do you think there's a brighter future ahead? Um, I think people are doing really wonderful things. I think people are, there's a lot of people who have the energy and passion and skills that are trying to deliver solutions. Personally, I'm quite pessimistic and I think we're too far gone. I think, you know, not to sound like some kind of anarchist, but, you know, the capitalist machine that we all live in is so well developed. And so, you know, the balance of power globally is so messed up. Um, it's such an unjust system in every way that I, I don't see how people who are in power would ever let it change anytime soon. It's going to be, fo- it will change. It's going to be forced to change by, by societal collapse, which sounds very dramatic, but it literally will at some point, you know, whether it's in our lifetime or the next hundred years or so. I sound so dramatic, but it is, you know, it is dramatic. We've, we've got many, many, many warnings, whether it's climate change or failure of crops because we've just pushed the soil too far or collapse of pollinator populations they're all sound quite apocalyptic but it is apocalyptic if we get it wrong so um yeah sorry (laughs) no you're definitely right though because you see it happening already in you know big rainforests that once supported huge ecosystems and now they're almost barren yeah Mm. and we are that we are the future in the uk you know it's very easy for us to look at 
you know, clearance of rainforest or um, damage to any of the habitat in the, across the world and say, oh, isn't that awful? But you look at the UK and it's an absolute, you know, it's barren compared to what it should be. There's so little nature here. I don't know about you guys, but when, like, when I talk to my folks, they say, oh, you know, when I was little, there used to be clouds of moths around the lamppost when I was going to sleep at night. And I'm like, so isn't, aren't you afraid that there's not anymore? And they're kind of like, oh. And they say like, oh, we used to have to clean our windscreen on the car every time we drove it because it was covered in bugs and now we don't. And I'm like, you're almost getting it. You know, it's almost as though there's something really wrong here. <laughs> yeah, there is. I know my dad always says that when he was a kid, he'd go for a bike ride and get hit in the face with loads of insects. And now you're lucky or unlucky. I mean, if you get one or two and it's hard to even imagine getting hit by loads. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Depressing. I know it's so depressing, but I guess you wonder how that then goes on to affect other species because obviously with less insects, there's less food then for birds. And I mean, collapses of food chains can start right at the bottom. Yeah. And it can be really hard to see because this has happened so fast in terms of nature's timeline in the last, you know, three quarters, two thirds of a century, this has happened. And a lot of birds, like I said, are really long lived, like... You know, I worked on a nature reserve a few years ago, the RSPB, and there was an oyster catch there that was 20-something years old, I think, nearly 20. And so in that time, if that oyster catch has been breeding every year and there's not been enough food for that oyster catch to feed those chicks, those chicks haven't been surviving. But we've seen an oyster catcher every year, so, you know, we might not be registering that. When that oyster catcher dies, that's it. Yeah. You know, that population's not been replaced. And so a, a population can be functionally are functionally nearly extinct well before we see it be extinct because it's not breeding, it's not replacing itself. And I think that's going to happen quite a bit. It's almost like things have to disappear all at once in hugely significant numbers for people to actually notice. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sad. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you don't want to well, talk to me. I'm really depressing. I think, I think there's a positive to this, that, you know, the, the obvious signs of things getting worse is that more and more people want to get involved. Um, and what do you think people can do to get involved? Can they do things in their own gardens? Yes, there's, um, you know, there's all the cliche stuff of things you can do in your garden. And you can, if you've got a garden, you can make it a local haven for wildlife. Be messy. And I'm not, I'm not talking about bird feeders here at all. Screw bird feeders. Um, I shouldn't say that. I work for the RSPB, but <laughs> <laughs> make it messy. Like literally. So one of my friends, I've my garden's not great at the moment because I'm not long moved into this house and I need to dig up this concrete hellhole of a patio to put down what I want to put down. But my friend who's lived in his house for years, every time we go out on a walk together in summer, he sees flowers and he just grab a little seed head and put it in his pocket and he just gathers seeds and he just sows them in his garden. And I think he's got over 40 species of wildflower and just like a terrace average garden, absolutely stunning. And the wildlife in there and it's just every square inch is just like bushiness and mess. Um, You know, bees and butterflies and moths and then all the birds that are nesting as well. If you think of every garden being like that, it could be heaven. No pesticides, no, you know, weed killer. It's just evil. I hate it. Like Roundup and all that. Ugh. We're just so conditioned to have this pristine life all of the time. It's all about imagery and what things look like you know, the rise of like the plastic lawn and that kind of thing. It's just, it's like a dystopia, but yeah, you can very much help at home and do little things like that. And I think it's all about our consumption as well. So much of it is related to our consumption. You know, I, there's nothing morally nor legally to stop me getting my wage 
in my bank account on a on a Friday, going into town. This is before COVID, going into town on a Saturday and spending four hundred pounds in Primark and New Look and River Island and buying whatever the hell I want. And everyone's just like, "Oh yay, ho, shopping!" And it's like, "Where's all this stuff coming from? This is cotton. This came out the ground. This is plant material. Where's it come from? What are the dyes that have been used to make it? What's the energy that's been used to make it? Where's it been flown from? What's it been packaged in?" And nobody thinks of these things. And it's all stuff we don't need. Like realistically, now, if Every single clothes shop in the UK never opened again. I reckon most of us could live till the day we die in the clothes that we own. We've got so many. It's, you know, everybody wants to be fashionable and that kind of thing. But if you're talking about what we actually need, we need a hell of a lot less than we have. Yeah. And the same goes with food. You know, we have a very kind of just demand what we want relationship with food. You know, if you want strawberries in December, you can go and get strawberries in December. And it's like, well, where have they come from? Morocco. Okay, cool. It's like... We've been literally put on a plane or a boat to get here, sprayed with pesticides, a lot of which are proven to be carcinogenic in, you know, large amounts. And it's just like we're all we're all so exploited by this machine that we don't even realize we're in it. We just keep going around and, you know, everybody's so focused on just trying to earn enough to be able to survive. that They're not really focused on the fact that they're being sold stuff that they don't need. So I think slowing down your relationship with stuff and food and just really questioning where everything that you buy comes from is one thing that people can do. Yeah, absolutely. Shopping locally and supporting local businesses is definitely a huge step forward. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, back to Beatles. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I always do this end up on a rant. Sorry. <laughs> to put all that out. <laughs> I was just thinking, uh, we've spoken about the stag beetle, but beetles more generally, what's their niche in the environment? So beetles, I would say, don't wouldn't occupy a niche entirely on their own because, and this is there's a reason, they are one of the most successful groups of invertebrates in the world. I believe one in every four invertebrate or insect, I can't remember which, because those are two different things, is a beetle. Wow. I'm going to say insect. One in every four insects is a beetle. So they are by far one of the most diverse groups of insects. There's just like thousands upon like hundreds of thousands of species in the world. Um, and they can be everything from predatory. So a lot of beetles are, are predatory all the way through to, I'm trying to think of all different examples of beetles that I know now. Some feed on pollen. So they're pollinators. A lot of them can be what we'd term as pests and stuff. So a lot of them have like caterpillars, um, they all have like a larval stage and an adult stage. And a lot of their larval stage is completely separate to their adult stage. So some bore in wood, like stag beetles. Some are water beetles that live in like ponds and are predatory. I'm trying to think of other examples now. So they, they cover all sorts of bases. They're just a fascinating, fascinating group, extremely diverse. And there's some really nice ones I want to see. There's like a, a jewel beetle or something in the UK that's green. Cockchafers, they're amazing. Cockchafers, maybugs, they're really cool. They've got those amazing like antennae with the pheromone receptors on that. They only come out every seven years or something like that. Is that right? That cicadas. Are they are they not the ones that burrow into the the roots of a tree and lay their eggs and mature after seven years or am I reading? Oh maybe, 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 maybe. Yes. Sorry, I misunderstood your question. I thought you meant the ones that only the adults emerge every seven years. All right. We got absolutely (laughs) plagued with them one year. They were so annoying, but they were very interesting <laughs> to look at. They were really interesting to look at. Yes, they're fast. So that yeah, they're another one that suffered huge declines. They used to be like everywhere. Um, used to be able to like there was such a big like crop pest that you used to be able to get like a bounty for like collecting them in buckets and killing them. And now there's just like 
yeah, none left. So yeah, big fan of beetles. They're really cool. Yeah, we saw um we saw a black oil beetle the other yeah. day. Yeah. It was very exciting. We didn't know we, well, we'd never seen a beetle like that before. No. It took us quite a long time to us- try an idea. Yes. They look really weird, don't they? Yeah. So um yes, another thing that beetles are is parasites, parasitic, um, which is what black oil beetles are. So I don't know, you won't have ever seen the young of them, will you? The no. babies. So do you know about them? Do you know what they do? No, I don't know much about them, no. Um, so there's there's five species of oil beetles in the UK. Black oil beetles are the ones I'm most familiar with. I think they're called Meloproscarabase, scientific name. <laughs> and they uh, they are parasitic of solitary bee species. So um, wherever you get like a, a colony, a nesting colony or a gang of, of solitary bees, for example, ashy mining bees or something like that, is you'll tend to find, if it's like a sandy heathlandy area you might find um oil beetle species as well and basically the male and the female will emerge at this time of year in early spring and then they'll mate the female will burrow into the ground and lay some eggs and from that the babies will hatch which are uh were they burrowing yeah yep. they're, they're burrowing <laughs> into sort of a solid um, concrete yeah they were trying path. to burrow into the path <laughs> <laughs> yes they do they like quite like compact sandy mm. soil so yeah, in a couple of months when the wildflowers are really starting to emerge, um, loads of these tiny little larvae will emerge. They're like tiny like that. And they're called um, triangulins, which is like one of the best words in the world. <laughs> and they will, they, they scurry really weirdly and they scurry up to like, they'll find the nearest flower and scurry up to the top and then they'll sit and they'll wait. And on their front legs, they've got these like modified little hairy claws <laughs> and they'll wait for a bee to land and they'll latch onto it um, and they'll just kind of cross their fingers that it's a solitary bee um, and that solitary bee after gathering pollen if it's a female will carry the triangulin and its fur back to its nest hole where it's burrowed itself um, and the triangulin will then disembark and crawl down into the hole and basically eat the baby's uh, baby bee or the egg um, and then just sit there and scoff all of the pollen that the bee's collecting for its bee <laughs> wow. um, and then it will pupate and turn into an adult oil beetle oh my They're very badass I love them they're great you look slightly horrified (laughs) 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 I love parasites I think they're fascinating but you know it shows those intricate layers of an ecosystem where you know you've got so many things that need to be in place for this species just to exist and yet they still do it's incredible yeah they're so cool I can't even imagine how they came up with the idea of you know, clinging onto a solitary bee for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Successful uh, mission. Yeah, it's amazing. There's such. I've not seen any yet this year, but I hope to see them after lockdown lifts a little bit because they're one of my favourites. We saw the first one sometime last week yes. and then we went back a few days later and it was still there trying to dig into the same bit of dirt unsuccessfully. Yes, they're a bit pathetic, aren't they? They're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this yeah. gravel path that it was trying to dig into, I, it definitely had no chance of getting yeah. into. Oh, it was solid. But it must have emerged from near there. So it's yeah. got to be somewhere nearby because it well, don't there fly. Was, there was grass to the right, mm. but it had made its way onto the path, to the yeah. sort of rocky path to burrow. Yeah. We tried to move it out of the path as well. And it just and came stop, back. Yeah, to stop it from getting hit by cars. But now it just doesn't care about the cars. Bless it. Yeah, they're really cool. They apparently they squirt like an oil out of their, their leg joints when they're stressed if you, if you piss them off, which I've never done. Right. But I am morbidly curious to see what it is. That apparently makes your skin blister or something, that oil. Ah. Is what we read, yeah. 
Sounds worth it. I don't know. I love like weird nature pain like that. If something really stinks or it hurts. <laughs> love it. And I wish I could do that. You know, someone annoyed me. Just <laughs> give them blisters on purpose. <laughs> anyway, do you have any final words of wisdom for people or advice for people who want to try and see more of a wild Britain? I mean, yeah, I suppose, I suppose taking an interest in it is, is what I'd say more than anything is to just take those steps to familiarise yourself with stuff and just have that natural curiosity that you've got as a kid because a large number of the problems that we've got stem from the fact that people just don't even realise what's going on. People don't know what they're missing and what they're losing. Um, we have such poor ecological education in the UK that you know most people can't ID a house sparrow, let alone a black oil beetle. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just familiarizing yourself with wildlife, starting with insects. First of all, it really helps with the fear factor. If you've got like, if you're a bit dis- uncomfortable or, or fearful around insects, it really helps you kind of get to grips with that because you understand if something's worth being scared of and the vast majority of things aren't. And there's only very few things that bite and sting. And even then, nothing in the UK is bad, except horse flies. I hate them. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, just get get to know learn to love it. And then you start to understand it more because if you understand something like a black oil beetle, take that example, or a stag beetle, if you see it, you know that that habitat that you're in right now is something special because it's giving the conditions that that insect or that species needs. And then you can also see when there's places where all these things are missing. When you go into like a really intensively managed field with no hedges and it's a monoculture and it's silent, it's telling you that something's wrong. So yeah, just get out there and, and love it and learn it, I suppose. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us. If people would like to find out more, then how can they how can they find you to get in touch? Uh, oh, uh, just on social media as Lucy Lapping. That was such an interesting chat with Lucy. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I learned so much during these podcasts. Me too, for sure. I know this one was mostly about the stag beetle, but my favourite thing I learned today was about the life cycle of the black oil beetle. I know what you mean. I was a bit sinister. I didn't actually realise they were so evil when we saw one on the path. It does make them more interesting, though. I definitely agree with Lucy when she said that learning about wildlife makes you care about it more. Because I feel quite attached to beetles now, particularly those of the black oil variety. Me too. If you enjoyed that podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Threatened Species and let us know what you think or to ask any questions or to suggest a topic. Yes, we'd love to hear what you have to say. But for now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye.